lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Chapter 12, page 169. And here, Al-Tarebi begins to discuss the hero of the entire Tanya. In general, the Torah speaks to the Benini. The Benini, the average person, but in this case, not so average, because really a special person, but every person has the ability to be a Benini. So the Benini was not a Tzaddik, and not a Rasha. This is the hero of the Tanya. This is the hero of the entire Torah. A Tzaddik, as we learned, is someone who no longer has a Yetzirah no longer has an evil inclination. Because the good in him has totally triumphed and vanquished the evil in him. That he no longer feels it, or in the complete tzaddik he has totally transformed it. The rasha is one who the negativity, the evil in him, the ego, dominates and prevails. Different levels. You have a good rasha, you have... But all variations of the same theme you have where the, the evil in the soul is the dominant force in the person's life. Now we come to the Benini. What is the Benini? The Benini is someone who when it comes to action, thought, speech, he's perfect. He does the right thing without fail. He leads a wholesome life. Thinks like a Jew, speaks like a Jew, acts like a Jew. But he has not transformed his, his inner self. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is still powerful, is still strong. He still has desires. He still desires negative things. He's still attracted to negative things. And his mind understands, and uh, his, his heart is drawn towards negative things. But he has inner discipline, he has inner strength, and he only does the right thing. This is the Benini. This is the name of the entire Tanya. is called Sefer Shal Benini, the book of the Benini. Alter Rebbe wrote a book for Tzadikim, but that book was burnt. But the, uh, this is the book of the Benini. So now, after this entire introduction, the introduction of the, of the first 11 chapters... Now the Alter Rebbe is going to explain at great length who the Benin is, what the Benin is. And this is the most practical, the most relevant to each and every one of us. Because this is, this is our potential. Every Jew could be a Benin. So this is, this is what the Torah speaks. This is who the Torah speaks to. The Torah speaks to the majority. In this case, the overwhelming majority. 99.9% of Jews don't have the potential to be a tzaddik, but they could be a bainan. So it was actually a song, you know, every Rebbe had a song, that it was their favorite song. The song for the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe is a song called the Benini. At the end of the Rebbe's Fabrengen, many times the Rebbe would tell them to sing a song from the Baal there's a song it has three parts. The Baal Shem Tov composed, or in his generation, they composed the first part. In the next generation, the Magid, they composed the second part. 
the Alter Rebbe was the third part, and then there's Alter Rebbe's song. Alter Rebbe himself composed ten songs. Alter Rebbe was a composer. The only Rebbe that composed songs. And uh, then there's the Mittler Rebbe's song, and the Samot Tzedek's song, and the Rebbe Marash's song, and the Rebbe Rashab's song, and the previous Rebbe's song, and the Rebbe's song. The Rebbe's song was Ata Bechartanu Mikola Amin. The previous Rebbe's song was a song called the Benin. It was actually composed by uh, my mother's grandfather, uh, Rabbi Aaron Haritano. And the previous Rebbe loved the song. When he heard the song, and this became his song. And he says, the song says, the Benini, it's a demanding song. That since you know that you're able to do the right thing, you could do the right thing, so why aren't you? Why aren't you living up to your potential? Whereas the Benini knows what's demanded of him, knows what's expected of him, knows what he's capable of, and has to be honest with himself, am I living up to my potential? I know what I'm capable of, am I living up to this ideal? So this is the ideal, um, a realistic ideal that's within the grasp of each and every Jew. The bottom of 169. The Benini intermediate man is he in whom the evil of the animal soul never attains enough power to conquer the small city, i.e. the body which is likened to a small city, which the divine and animal soul both wish to dominate, so as to clothe itself in the body and make it sin. That is to say, the three garments of the animal soul, namely thought, speech, and action, originating in the klipa, i.e. forbidden thought, speech, and action, which derive their vitality from Kripa, as explained in previous chapters, are in the Benini so subdued that they do not prevail within him over the divine soul to the extent of clothing themselves in the body, either in the brain, so that the brain think forbidden thoughts with the animal soul's garment of thought, nor in the mouth to speak forbidden words, the garment of speech, nor in any of the other 248 organs, to act in a forbidden manner, the garment of act. In none of these do the garments of the animal soul clothe themselves to cause them to sin and to defile them, Hashem forbid, in which case he would be a Rasha, not a Benoni. Only in the three garments of the divine soul they alone manifest themselves in the body, these being the thought, speech, and action related to the 613 commandments of the Torah. Benoni has never committed any transgression, nor will he ever transgress. The name, the name Rasha has never been applied to him, however temporarily, not even for a moment throughout his life. The question is, you mean if a person sinned once in his life, he can no longer be a Benoni? And this is supposed to apply to 99.9% of Jews? That would exclude 99.9% of Jews. You do a single sin and you no longer... You can no longer be a, a Benini. A Benini is someone who never ever sinned in his life, and he adds, will never sin. How could how can anyone guarantee the future? A person has freedom of choice. We find that Tzadikim, Rabbi Yochanan Kayan Gadol, Rabbi Yochanan was a high priest from the Hashmanayim, was a high priest for 80 years, and then he became a Tzaduk, he became a heretic. So how can you guarantee he'll never sin? Even a Tzadik can sin. And if someone sinned, you can never, you can never be a Benini. Why? We learned earlier in the previous chapter that even a Rasha, if he does Teshuvah, and it's a complete Shuvah, then he can become a Benin. So what do you mean 
and he never sinned. And the Rebbe explains it means that at that moment, at that present moment, the way the soul feels at that moment, the godly soul is so strong, is so in charge, is so in control of the person, that at that moment, it's the idea of sin it has no connection to it. That were he to be in the same position where he was in the past, or if you would put him in the same position in the future, it's just sin is just, it's not even, it's out of the question. To actually sin, to actually speak something wrong, or to think something wrong, or to actually do something wrong, it's out of the question. Because he feels so strongly about godliness, and he feels so strongly about doing the right thing, and he's so strong about it, that it's not even a question. Yes, he's tempted to do it, but to actually do it, that, that not. So at that moment, it's as if he never sinned, and as if he never will sin. In other words, his, his matzav nefesh, the place where he's at, at that moment, at that moment, it's as if he never sinned. So even though, yes, factually, he did sin in this previous life, but he did teshuvah. He repented. And he, re- yeah, and he re- reached a level which now, now the whole thought of sinning is just, it's out of the question. It's not an option. And were he to be in the same position, in the same place, he would never ever come to sin. That's a benini. A benini, as we explained earlier, is not just practically that he's practically sinning or practically not sinning. It's more than that. It's, it's, a certain, it's a certain level, internal commitment, that sin is just out of the question. How can I do something against Hashem? How can I do something that's not Jewish? How can I do something that's not godly? How can I do something negative? Anything that's not godly is negative. I can't. And he feels so strongly about it, that worried to come up, worried to be in the, in the same position, is just, it's just out of the question. There's no way that he's going to do something that violates against the code of Jewish law. It goes against the Torah. His behavior will be consistent with the Torah. So, Rabbi, what you're saying is somebody was a Rasha and he does Shuvah, then he becomes Binoy? If, if it's a genuine Teshuvah. There is a Rasha that does Teshuvah, like he said earlier, but he doesn't have that commitment that he won't sin again. You know, they say a thief who doesn't have the opportunity to steal thinks he's honest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's like a person could do tshuva, but he doesn't have that strong resolve, that worry to be in the same place, in the same position. He will absolutely not repeat the behavior. He'll behave differently. Sometimes a person regrets what he does, but don't tempt him. <laughs> don't put him in the same position, because you put him in you don't know what's going to happen. But we, don't even, but we don't always know what... Well, we shouldn't put ourselves voluntarily. You yeah. shouldn't test yourself. But the real tshuva is that were you to be in the same position, had the same opportunities, you're in your youth, and you're in your heat, and your, your, your opportunity to sin, and temptation to sin, and you can get away with it, and no one will know, and you can do the same thing, and yet you say, no, I'm not going to do this. That's a genuine teshuva. In other words, something changed inside. Something changed inside of you. You made a strong resolve. You're never going to do this again. So if a person really reaches that level of teshuva, then he becomes a benini. That, that the whole concept of sinning is repulsive to him. So it is an internal change. Something clicks inside of you that the whole concept of actually sinning, of actually doing something that creates negative energy, that brings negative energy into this world, to do something that goes, violates, and disconnects me from Hashem, and to do something sinful is just not out of the question. It's klipa. It's negativity. I don't want, to, I don't want anything negative in my life. 
It's not, enough. It's not enough. I'm not eating any junk food anymore. No more junk food, no more junk lifestyle. End of story. Uh, yes, it's tempting. Yes, I'm tempted, but I'm not going to do it. That resolve, that's the resolve. I never will, and it's as if I never had. In other words, were, were I able to go back to my past, were I able to, I would, ne- I would never do that. It's just out of the question. So it's as if you never sinned in your life. The way I stand today, it's as if I never sinned, I can never sin. Not past, not in the future. Were I able to take a time machine and go back, go back to my life, I wouldn't do it again. It's just out of the question. The way I stand now, the way I feel now, the way I'm connected now. So this is, this is the level of a bainan. But of course, if a person does sin, it doesn't mean, God forbid, he can never be a bainan. Of course he could be a bainan. And there are no guarantees. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We change, our moods change. You know, even a tzaddik, we find in history, some tzaddikim became, became a Russian. People have freedom of choice. Anything is possible. Life is constantly shifting. Life is constantly moving. moving. We never stand, life never stands still. So life is full of surprises. We never know what's in store tomorrow, and uh, life is unpredictable. We have to make choices all the time. We have to make quantum leaps and choices all the time. It's real. You know, we're real. Life is real. And we make choices. And, but the way I stand today, at this moment I'm a bane. At this moment, the whole concept of sin, it's as if I never sinned in my life. And it's, you can guarantee I'll never sin. It's as if you can guarantee the way I stand now, I will never sin. That's how strongly I feel about the, the idea of actually sinning, the idea of actually saying a lie, or even saying something that's avak lashon hara, even something that's avak of a lie, even something that's just a, a subtle lie or a subtle uh, uh, slander, or thinking even negative thoughts or lewd thoughts or negative thoughts, just not out of the question. I just, I just can't do that. that that's a benini. That's the level of a benini. One seventy-one. Rabbi Shlita notes the question is well known i.e. with regard to the statement that the Benini is one who has never transgressed. The following question is commonly raised. Is it not possible through repentance and subsequent divine service that one attain the rank of Benoni despite his previous sins? After repenting, one can rise even to the level of Tzadik. Surely then the rank of Benoni is not beyond his reach. The Rebbe answers this question in the following manner. When the Alter Rebbe states that the Benoni has never transgressed, he does not mean that the Benoni never sinned in his life as a human being, but that in his life as a Benoni, he has no history of sin. The Benoni's present spiritual state is such that sin, in the past as well as in the future, has no place in his life. He would not sin even if he was subject to the same temptations and trials which led him to sin in the past. It is therefore true to state that from the perspective of his present state, he has never sinned. Likewise, the Alter Rebbe's statement that the Benoni will never sin is to be understood in the same vein. The intention is not that it is impossible for him to sin. He does not, after all, lose his freedom of choice. Rather, as explained above, his present state is such that it precludes his sinning in the future, despite the trials that the future may bring. To be classified as a true Benoni, one must fulfill these conditions. For as one's spiritual state precludes his sinning only under present conditions, but he would succumb to sin were he subject to the temptations of the past, or those the future may bring, 
then he is in potentia arash. He could and would sin, except that the prevailing circumstances are not sufficiently conducive to him to do so. The same thing, the Altarebi concludes, the name Rasha, referring to one who sins in thought, speech, or action, has never, again in a state of Benoni, been applied to him, however temporarily. For the Benoni has reached a state where sin is precluded under any circumstances, whether of the past or future. It remains to be understood, however, why such a lofty person is considered merely a Benoni, not a Tzaddik. Did you ever meet such a person? Maybe I've met such a person once in my life. A person who's so perfect, a person who is perfect, behaves perfectly in thought, speech, and action, never once violated the code of Jewish law, not a biblical mitzvah or prohibition, not a rabbinic mitzvah or prohibition, not even a subtle sin, a subtle lie, a subtle slander. A person who's perfect, who's so in control, a person who's so in charge of his life, a person who's so focused and so connected, and a person who is like perfect in behavior. You know, it's, it's in, you can paint someone who's perfect. When was the last time you met a person who's so perfect? <laughs> in real life, it's hard to find a person who's perfect. The painter can try to paint the portrait of a person who's perfect, the Mona Lisa, but uh, in real life, it's very rare to find a person who's perfect. A person who's perfect, his behavior is perfect. There's nothing negative. Everything about him is wholesome. 24-7. All the time, throughout his life, consistently, despite the ups and downs, and all throughout the year, always does the right thing, always speaks the right thing, always thinks the right thing, follows the code of Jewish law, follows the Torah, lives by the Torah. I mean, it's such a rare individual. Have you ever met anyone like that? <laughs> might exist, but we don't know them. No, but, th- but this is not a tzaddik, mind you. We're talking about a benini. This is a benini. We're not even talking about a tzaddik. A tzaddik is one or two in a generation. No, we're, not talking about we're talking about a benini, and he says that this, is, this is, applies to 99.9% of us. Every one of us could be a benini. When was the last time you met one in your life? You're talking on the actual present of your regret time, you know, when you regret but he said earlier, that's the Russia. The Russia is always filled with regret. The Jew always regrets. A Jew never sins wholeheartedly. So the moment you do something wrong, you immediately regret it. But that's a Russia. It's not a Benin. A Benin is someone who's not even capable of sinning. Like he says, he never, it's as if he never sinned, as if he never will sin. Because he's so strong about it that the whole concept of actually doing something negative in your life, eating junk food, living a junk lifestyle, doing something negative in your life, doing something disconnecting, doing something ungodly, unwholesome, it's just out of the question. I can't, he can't bring himself to do it. Of course, he's tempted. That's the difference between the Benini and the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik is one who doesn't even have a temptation. That's one or two in a generation. But the Benini is tempted, but nevertheless, he has the strength and the discipline, and he's in control, and he's, and he's in charge. And the whole idea of not doing, doing something wrong or not doing something right is just out of the question. It's not even, it's not even an option. This is such a rare individual. In other words, what people call tzaddikim, conventionally we throw the term around, ah, oh, tzaddik. A tzaddik is, what people call a tzaddik is, is a Russia, <laughs> barely. <laughs> a good Russia, 
a beta leaf is almost like a perfect person. Where do you find such a person? A person who's absolutely perfect. It's good. Behaves. His behavior is perfectly good. All the time. Everywhere. Thought, speech, action. But at the time, at a certain point of time, if he has the intent to be that type of person, then isn't he that type of person? Isn't he a, a Benoni at that time? Until, <laughs> until, until he's, he's faced with that. Because you don't know. You don't yeah, know what's going to happen. I mean, if you have... A, well, uh, it's a question of how strong his resolve is. You know, if a person has a good intent, but the moment he's tested, he's weak... And every time he's tested, he's weak. That's, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's, that, that, that does not a Benini make. Um, a Benini, as he said, is someone who never sinned and never will sin. His intent is more than intent. It's so powerful that really, were he to be in the same temptation, the same position, is just out of the question. So at that point, why isn't he uh, at Sabbath? That's the, que- oh, that's the question you want to know. This rear individual. It sounds like a tzaddik to, to me. It sounds like a, such a rare individual, someone who's so perfect, someone who's such a strong inner resolve. And he's so connected that the whole idea of doing something that disconnects him from Hashem and disconnects him from himself and his true being, his true essence, his true nature. And to sin or to transgress or to violate or to trespass or do something that's just negative, it's just out of the question. This sounds like a very rare individual. Why isn't he a tzaddik? What's the difference between him and a tzaddik? Why is he still not a tzaddik? He's so strong, and he's so in control, and he's so in charge, and he's so perfect. Absolutely perfect, and yet he's not a tzaddik. He's called a benin. That's what people call a tzaddik. You read the biographies of different people. Oh, this rabbi was a tzaddik. You read the Tanya, what tzaddik? What tzaddik? <laughs> a Russia, if you're lucky. Halavai benini. This great Rosh Hashiv and this great uh, teacher and this great rabbi and this great and this great this. Halavai would be a Benini. This Benini sounds like a Superman. What a superior human being. What a perfect human being. Even in real life, uh, talk about other... A person who's so disciplined, a person who eats healthy. You know, you live in a society that's swamped with junk. And a person who has a discipline, a strong discipline, not to conform, not to swim with the current, to go contrary to what everyone else is eating and doing, and a person who decides to eat only healthy and wholesome, and is consistent about it, and is perfect about it. I mean, that's a very rare individual. That takes tremendous stamina, tremendous courage, tremendous personality, tremendous character, tremendous individuality, Tremendous strength, character. Hey, you're talking about a, a very rare individual. And that's inner strength. It's not just external. It's not a robot. You're not talking about a robot here, who's, a person who's not tempted to do something wrong. The Benini has temptations. He has urges and he has instincts and he has temptations and he's attracted. But nevertheless, the moment the negative thought enters his head, he pushes it away. He doesn't entertain it. He dismisses it. And he only speaks the truth and only speaks kind words and good words and only acts and behaves appropriately between man and man and man and God following all 613 mitzvot, do's and don'ts. 
negatives and positives, prohibitions and, and commission, omission, everything. Rabbinic, biblical, custom. Not even subtle slander or negativity about another person. Not even a subtle lie. You're talking about a tremendous character. This is, this is not a superficial person. This is a very deep person, a very committed person. A person with integrity, a person uh, uh, with courage, a person with uh, you know, moral integrity. You're talking about a very deep commitment. So th- why is this person not a tzad? Obviously, this person has, in his soul, he has made a very strong, he has resolved a very strong resolution to do the right thing. So it's a very deep commitment, a very deep connection. And yet he's not a tzaddik. This rare individual, this perfect individual, which most of us probably have never met even a single one. <laughs> and this is the hero of the Tanya. And this is what the Rebbe expects from each, what the Torah expects from each and every one of us. And yet this person is not a tzaddik. Why isn't, he a, why isn't he a tzad? That's what Dr. Rebbe is going to explain now on the top of page 172. However the essence and being of the divine soul, which are its ten faculties, the three soul powers of intellect and the seven emotional faculties are referred to as the essence of the divine soul in contrast with the soul's garments, thought, speech, and action which serve merely as outlets and means of expression for the soul's essential faculty. Elsewhere, the Alter Rebbe himself, the author himself, clarifies what he means here. When he calls the essence of the soul, when he refers to the personality of the soul, your, your mind, your brain, and your heart, as the essence of your soul, he said it's not exactly accurate. That's not the essence of your soul. The essence of your soul is transcends your intellect, and your heart, and your emotions. Because essence never changes. Core things never change. Intellect is constantly changing. A person becomes wiser, a person becomes smarter. The fact that you say a person is smart means that it's a shem hatohar. Shem hatohar means it's a, it's a description. You're describing the person. The person is smart. Obviously, the person has nothing to do with smartness. The person is beyond smartness. The essence of the person is something that transcends smartness. Because just like the body in relationship to the soul, could you say the body is your soul? Is the body the soul? No, the body is not the soul. The soul departs the body and the body is left alone. The body is not the soul. The soul is spiritual. The body is physical. But nevertheless, when the person is alive, the body becomes one with the soul. The body itself is alive. So much so, when you cut your finger, it hurts. The body is not like clothes. When you wear clothes, if someone cuts your clothes, it doesn't hurt. Because it's not part of you. Unless it's a turtle's clothes. <laughs> turtle grows with his clothes. So it's part of him. When you cut his clothes, you hurt him. But the, the, the clothes are external to the person. You can take it off, you can, t- you can take it on, you can, t- you can put them on, you can take them off. The body is inseparable from the soul. If you cut the finger, you've, cut, you've hurt your soul. You feel the pain. You can't separate the body and the soul. But nevertheless, no one is going to equate the soul with the body. The soul is not the body. The soul is greater than the body. So the body, in a certain sense, you can't call the body the essence of the soul. The body, in a certain sense, is like, um, has become one with the soul and contains the soul. 
is a vehicle for the soul. And the same is true that there is a body. So when he, the body of the soul, the body of the soul is just like you have a physical body. So too the soul itself has the body of the soul and the soul of the soul. The body of the soul is your personality, your character, your brain, your mind, the way your mind thinks, uh, your understanding, your comprehension, your creativity. Then you have the emotions, your personality. But this is the body of the soul. It's not your soul. It's one with the soul. It's inseparable with the soul. When you understand something, your soul understands through your brain, through your mind. When you feel something, your soul feels. Your soul loves, your soul hates, your soul is attracted, your soul is repulsed. You draw near you, you run away, you have compassion. But these are all, these are like the body, just like when you move your body. Your soul, your soul comes along with you, right? You slap someone by his hand, you have his body, you also have his soul, because the soul and the body are inseparable. The soul, the body contains the soul, and the soul expresses itself through the body. So too, you have the spiritual body. The spiritual body is your mind, your brain, and your heart, your emotions. That's the body of your soul. And they're inseparable from the soul. It contains the soul. The soul expresses itself through the mind and through the heart, but it's not the soul itself. The essence of the soul, it transcends the mind, transcends the heart, transcends intellect, transcends emotion. The essence of the soul is the soul of the soul. The soul itself is, is infinite, is undefined, is intangible. It, the soul contains intellect and contains emotions, and emotions and intellect flow from the soul, and they're connected to the soul, inseparable from the soul, but it's not the soul itself. The soul, the essence of the real, true essence of the soul, is something that never changes. It's the core, it's the essence. It transcends the intellect, the mind, and the heart. But it's the body of the soul. So just like physically, when you refer to the person, the body is like the essence of the person, the bones. Atmos, he uses the word atmos. Atmos comes from the word etzem, the bone. The bones, your body. In regard, in relationship to the clothes, the clothes are external. The clothes are external to the body. They match the body, and they, you reveal yourself through your clothes, and they express who you are, the type of clothes that you wear, but nevertheless, it's not you. It's something external, something you've added on to the body, and you can remove. You, can't add, you don't add on your arm, and you, you, don't, you don't take it off at night, you don't put it back on in the morning. The arm is part of you. It's an inseparable part of you. So that's what he means, the atmos, your etzim, your bone, your very... But that's, of course, not your essence. Your essence is not your body. Your essence is your soul. But the body has become inseparable with the soul. So too spiritually. You have the garments of the soul. The garments of the soul are thought, speech, and action. I think. I can think two plus two is five. You could. It's nonsense, but you can think it. Could you understand two plus two is five? Impossible. And once you understand that two plus two is four, could you ever understand that two plus two is five? No. Because it, it's become part of you. You can't separate yourself from it. It's not like clothes. Clothes are external, are superficial. You can put them on and you can, and you can take them off. I can wear one set of clothes in the morning. I can change, change it the, the next minute and I can change clothes. I can think different thoughts. I can think opposite thoughts. But you can't change your personality so quickly. You can't love and a second later hate and a second later... I mean, it's, it's, once you love something, it's very difficult to change Something that you truly love, you don't suddenly change overnight and suddenly you hate. 
Once a person understands something in his mind, let's say a person decides to become a liberal because in his mind he understands that this is the approach, you don't suddenly turn around and suddenly you become a Republican, a, a conservative, you know, because your mind, you, made, you, have, you understand something. Your mind tells you that this is the right approach and it's very difficult to change your mind. It's possible, but it's difficult. It's not like clothes. Clothes are interchangeable. You put them on, you put them off. I can, I can say one thing today and, and I, can, I can immediately turn around and say, say the exact opposite. Because it's external, it's interchangeable. But internally, understanding, feeling, that's personal. That's internal. It's like, it's like your body. You can't take off your arm and put it back on. It, it's part of me. It has become part of you. Once you feel something, once you understand something, it's part of you. It becomes an inseparable part of your soul. And that's why the Alter Rebbe refers to it as the essence of the soul. Not in the absolute sense of essence, that this is truly the core essence of the soul. The essence of the soul is beyond, transcends mind, intellect, heart, emotion. It's something infinitely deeper. But he, in reference to the in relationship to the garments, thought, speech, and action, this is the essence. Because once you feel something, it's become part of you. It's not interchangeable. You can't just take it on and take it off with that whim and just... It's part of you. Once you understand something, it becomes part of you. You've internalized it. It becomes part of you. It's integrated. Just like the body becomes part of the soul. You can't just remove your body. It's not like a suit. Let me take off the body and put it back on. Let me take off the arm, take off my leg and put it back on. It's part of me. Of course, but it's not your soul. No one's going to say that your arm is your soul. And your your leg is your soul. But it's become an inseparable part of you. So in re- relation to the clothes, you can refer to the body as, as, as your being, as your essence. But that's, of course, not your... In the ultimate sense, that's not your essence. Your essence is your soul. So too, within the soul itself, in relationship to the thought, speech, and action, when the soul thinks, and the soul speaks, and the soul acts, which are all expressions of the soul, which are external and superficial to the soul, in relationship to that, the mind of the soul, the personality and the character, the, the heart of the soul, the emotions, and the understanding, comprehension, that's the essence of the soul. Because once you understand something, once you feel something, it becomes an inseparable part of, part of your soul. It contains your soul. And it expresses your soul. But if, in the ultimate sense of the word, etzim, core and essence, of course, that's not the core and essence of your soul. The core and essence of your soul transcends uh, intellect. Of course, you have willpower, and you have pleasure, and which are much deeper than the ultimate core and essence and the driving force behind everything, intellect and emotion. So he's just saying that this is, he refers to it here in relationship to the garments of the soul, that your conscious self, your personality, your character, your mind, your understanding and your emotion, he refers to here as, as your essence, as your bones, as who you are. So he's saying that the essence of the soul, continue, do not hold undisputed sovereignty and sway over the small city, the body. For as shall be explained later, the faculties of the animal soul, too, exercise some degree of control over the body, through awakening in one's heart's desires for worldly pleasures, which in turn cause forbidden thoughts to enter his mind. Okay, so he's saying the Bain, although the Bainini is a master, a true master, and it's perfect when it comes to action and thoughts and speech, but he cannot master his conscious self. He can't master your heart. You're not a master on your heart. That you shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong. That's out of our control. He has no control over that. He's not a master over that. He's still tempted to do something wrong. 
or to think something wrong or to speak something wrong. So he is not the undisputed sovereign. He has competition. It's a two-party system. It's not, it's not a one-party system. But he's the only one in control. There's, as we'll learn in chapter 13, there's another voice and there's another uh, energy inside of you that's pulling you in the, in the opposite direction. It's not related to the soul. It's a different soul, yeah. It's, we have two souls within us. We have the nefesh habamit, the natural soul, the ego soul, and then we have the nefesh holikit, the divine soul. So it is related, but we have two souls within us, and we have two different, we have two different parties within us. We have two different uh, who clash, who are pulling us in two opposite directions. One pulling, pulls us down, one pulls us up. One elevates us, and one schleps us down. And they're both within us. And we can't control that. We're not, God did not give us the ability to control our conscious self. We should not even be tempted. We shouldn't lust. We shouldn't be tempted to do the, to do, to do the wrong thing. That's simply not in our control. So as masterful as the Bainani is, and he's a true master. This is a true master. And as, as, as in charge and control as he is, as perfect as he is, absolutely perfect, behaviorally, but nevertheless, he's not, he has not mastered, he cannot master his conscious self. He still has a Yetzirah, he's still, he's still tempted to, to, towards a materialism. There's nothing he can do about it. Such a nudge. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the story of the rabbi? Someone comes to the rabbi complaining. He says, Rabbi, what should I do? I talk to myself. Rabbi said, listen, everyone talks to themselves. I, mean, I, I also occasionally talk to myself. So, Rabbi, you don't understand. I'm such a nudge. <laughs> so this is, this is why the Benini is not a tzaddik. The tzaddik is one who is in control of his conscious self. He has total mastery over his conscious self. As it says by Avram, Avram's name was Avram. Why was his name changed from Avram to Avraham? Because what's the numerical value of Avram? Resh, Mem, Olive Base, 243. How many limbs does a person have? 248. So Avram had mastery before his name was changed, before he had the bris. Till the age of 99, he had mastery over 243 limbs. But he did not have mastery on five limbs. On his eyes, on his ears. And on, on, his, on his organ, that he did not have mastery over, because it's not out of your control. You can't control what you see, you can't control what you hear. You see what you see, what you see, and you hear what you hear. Hashem gave him a gift when he, became, when he had the briz, that suddenly he got mastery over all 248 limbs. The hay, even the additional hay. So this is a tzaddik. This is not in our control. We're human. We live in this world. We respond to things of this world. We respond to materialism. We relate to materialism. We connect with materialism. That's not in our control. We're not angels. We are very earthy. We're very human down to earth. So as perfect as our behavior is, we could be total masters. And a Bainani is a true master. You could be masters. You could be in charge. You could be in control. But you're still human. There's certain things that are not in your control. You shouldn't even be tempted. You shouldn't have lust. You shouldn't even be attracted to materialism. You shouldn't relate to materialism. That's simply not in our control. That's in the realm of a tzaddik. He says, but the only time that a benini um, does get a taste of the tzaddik, he says, there are moments when the benini, when the benini is able to reach 
the level of a tzaddik, at least in a subtle way. In other words, not only that the Bainini is a master over his behavior, but that the Bainini is not even tempted to do something wrong. And that's the reason why we spend so much time learning about the tzaddik. If the tzaddik is only one or two in a generation, like Avram, he had control of his hearing and over his sight, and it's totally beyond our, our control, 99.9% of us is not even capable of even dreaming of being a, a, a master in that level. Simply with, not within our power. God didn't create us that way. So why are we spending so much time studying about the tzaddik? Why are we aspiring to be like the tzaddik? Because the answer is that this is the, this is the ultimate goal of a Jew. A Jew should reach a level and not only you should do the right thing, you shouldn't do anything that's wrong, but you should reach the level of a tzaddik you shouldn't even want to do, desire to do anything wrong. You shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong. How is it possible for us Simple people, made of flesh and blood, earthy, down-to-earth people, with healthy, raging instincts and materialistic instincts and urges and desires. How is it possible that we should even get a taste of the tzaddik, a glimpse of the tzaddik, that at least for certain moments we shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong? He says it's possible. How is it possible? During prayer. Because this is what prayer is all about. This is the ultimate meaning of prayer. Superficially, what is prayer all about? You have a need, you pray to God. You recognize everything comes from God, everything comes from Hashem, and you pray to Hashem. That's very superficial. If that's what, if that's what, what prayer was all about, why spend so much time praying? Every morning we spend an hour praying. Why? You can sum it up in three minutes. Please, Hashem, I need this and this and this. Okay, if you have a long list, an extra five minutes. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then be grateful. Thank Hashem for all the good in your life. Appreciate it. Turn to Hashem because Hashem is the ultimate address, the only address where things can really change. You have to work in a natural way. You have to go to the doctor, to the financial consultant. You have to work hard. But ultimately, all blessings come from Hashem. And you turn to Hashem. Hashem, please help me. That's the foundation of prayer. Why spend so much time prayer? The whole structure of prayer? So obviously there's something much deeper going on in prayer. And the Kabbalists explain that this is the vision, Jacob's vision, the vision of the ladder. That Jacob saw the ladder. The ladder was planted in this world and he saw angels going up and down. It reached heaven. The feet of the ladder, the foot of the ladder was in this in the earth and the end of the ladder ended up in heaven. And he saw angels going up and down. And this is the idea of prayer. And this ladder has four steps, four levels. The idea of prayer is to connect heaven and earth. The root of the word tefillah, in addition to the simple meaning, means to pray, to beg, to ask. The root, the Hebrew root of the word tefillah comes from the word hatofel, to connect. It's all about connecting heaven and earth. It's about focusing. It's about centering yourself. It's about waking up when you're waking up in the morning and waking up spiritually. It's about remembering and reconnecting with your divine, with heaven, with the divine spark inside of you, connecting with Hashem, remembering who you are, remembering what your life is all about. Your essence is not materialistic. Your essence is divine, is godly. It's about refreshing that connection, feeling that connection, experiencing that connection on a conscious level. That's what prayer is all about. That's why it takes time. And you don't just jump into prayer. There's levels. 
the ladder has four rungs because you have to go from one level of consciousness to a higher level of consciousness to a higher level of consciousness. You don't just end up in heaven. You wake up in the morning, you're on earth. You're earthy, down-to-earth person, and suddenly, slowly but surely, you climb, you make your way up till you reach heaven. Shemona Esri, the silent prayer, the climax, you reach heaven. And once you reach heaven, then you climb back down. You bring down all the blessings from heaven. It's a two-way street. That's why in the Shemon Esri, you, you, all the blessings, that's what all the blessings, you bring down all the energy, positive energy, all the divine energy, you bring it back down to earth with you. That's why our needs are answered during prayer, because when you're connecting and you're climbing to heaven and you're reaching heaven, then all your needs are, you bring down all your needs, all the blessings that you need in your life also come down. So it's about connecting heaven and earth and getting in touch with the divine inside of you, with the heaven inside of you, and feeling it, feeling its force. So at least for that moment, when a Jew prays, for at least during the time of prayer, for that brief moment, we can all get a glimpse, a taste of the inner life of the tzaddik. Because during prayer, when you're immersed in godliness, and you're concentrating on godliness, and you're focused, and you're centered, during those brief moments, you're not even tempted to do anything wrong. Because the only reality is godliness. So, so your materialistic side, your materialistic self, your natural self, your raging instincts, and is, is all is put to bed for a few moments, at least during prayer. So during prayer, you can reach a level of ecstasy, of excitement, of, of love, of Hashem. So at that moment when your heart is filled with love for Hashem, there's no room for anything else. Because that's the nature of godliness, as we'll learn so it's going to explain that godliness is like light. When you fill up a room with light, there's no room for darkness. When you fill your life with the divine, with godly, there's no room for darkness. As the Kotzke Rebbe once said, he said, I don't want my Hasidim not to sin. I want my Hasidim that they shouldn't have time to sin. The life is so filled, it's so busy with godly things, they have no time. When your life is filled with godliness, during prayer, when your heart is filled with love of Hashem, and your mind is filled with meditation and reflection and concentration and focus on godliness, there is no room. You've filled up your heart and mind. Your conscious self is filled up with light, with the divine light. When your, divine, when your heart and mind, your conscious self is filled with the divine light, there is no room for anything like that. So the negative disappears. Negativity disappears. At that moment, you're not even tempted to do something wrong. Your animal soul is put to bed. It's put asleep. You give it an anesthesia, a shot, mm-hmm. and it doesn't bother you for a few hours. Then it comes roaring back to life. Don't worry. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> but at least during prayer, at least for that moment, you can get a taste of what the tzaddik's life is all about 24-7. The tzaddik never has a temptation because the tzaddik's life is always filled with godliness. 20, throughout the day, when he's in business. This is every person a bainer? Every person. Oh, well, everyone could be a bainer. Every person has the ability, and that's why the tefillah is for every Jew. The rabbis institute, that's why the tefillah is so important. You have to start the day, you can't do anything. The first thing you do in the morning is, you have to pray. Because the first thing you have to do in the morning is, you have to focus. You have to be centered, you have to concentrate, you have to, you have to connect. Consciously. You have, to, you have to touch heaven. You have to remember the heaven inside of you. You have to remember who you are. And not just remember it superficially. Experience it. Taste it. Touch it, feel it, meet it, encounter it, be inspired by it. Fill your heart, fill your mind 
with that divine light. And that's where you have to start the day. When you start the day, filling your life and your heart and your mind and your soul with the divine light within your soul, within your godly soul, and at least for an hour, for half hour, the, the, the animal soul is put to bed, then we have a fighting chance. Then at least we have a chance to be a Benini the rest of the day. That when we go, when we close the prayer book, when we go back to the bagel and butter and locks, when we go out to the business world, and we go, at least the impression, the impression, that taste that we got in the morning gives us the strength and the energy, the power, empowers us to be able to negotiate our way throughout the day and be consistent, do the right thing, even though we have healthy temptations and our animal soul comes roaring back to life and we have instincts and raging instincts and, but nevertheless we're not, we don't allow ourselves to be seduced by that false siren and we remain strong throughout the day but every day we have to do it again every day you have to do it again you have to pray all over again yesterday's strength is not going to help you today Yesterday's moment of focus, of contact, of experience, of encountering, of connecting, of centering, is not going to help tomorrow. It only helps for that day. Because you go back to bed, and then you wake up in the morning, start all over. Every day is a new beginning. Just like you have to eat every day. But I ate yesterday. <laughs> that was yesterday. <laughs> that carried you through the day. Today is a new day. I have to eat all over again. It's a new day. So every day, the rabbis, you have to pray. So this is the bainini. The bainini is someone who at least starts his day, and at least during prayer, is able to taste something of the tzaddik, is to fill his mind and heart with the divine light, and then the animal soul doesn't bother. That not only he does the right, he's not even tempted, at least for that moment, he's not even tempted, he's not even drawn to, he's not even attracted to anything materialistic. His heart is on fire with godliness. He loves Hashem, and he loves godliness, and is attracted to godliness and sees through the superficiality and the externality of materialism. And then we close the book, we go out into the world, and we forget. Because the distractions are out there, the temptations are out there, and we're human, we're, we're, we're flesh and blood, we're earthy people, we're down-to-earth people. We respond to the stimulation all around us. But the impression that's left with us remains with us throughout the day. But then you have to do a quick mincha in the middle of the day. You have, to, you have to hang on for dear life. In the middle of the day, in the middle of the hoo-ha, the tumult of business, you have to stop everything. And It's very brief, but just for a minute, just remember. Refresh that memory. Because you have to, you have to stop and focus three times a day. It's not, it's not enough. Because it's so easy for us to get distracted. It's so easy for us to forget. You can't live off the interest of what you did yesterday. You know, it's not enough. It's not a, it doesn't produce enough revenue for us to live off. This is just enough to carry us. And then in the middle of the day, quickly, you have to do a mincha to connect. And then at the end of the day, you need a mairif to put everything back into focus and to be able to go to bed like a Jew. You want to wake up like a Jew, you have to go to bed like a Jew. You have to dab a mairif. So the prayer is a lifeline. Prayer is not just praying for our needs, begging for our needs. That's superficial. That's, that's elementary. It's much deeper than that. Prayer is our lifeline, is the ladder that through which we climb and touch heaven, experience heaven. And then you breathe easily the rest of the day. Then it gives you the strength to be able to meet the challenges throughout the rest of the day.
172, in the middle of 72, 172, only at specific times. Only at specific times do the faculties of the divine soul hold on the spirit sovereignty over the Pinoni, the animal soul having no effect whatever on it, such as during the recital of the Shema and the Amida. At this time of prayer, the supernal intellect above is in sublime state. It's a time of great illumination in the higher world. Prayer is a time, not just in this world, but also in parallel, is also a, a, a time in heaven where the gates of heaven are open. So it's a time where godliness is accessible, that you can reach a sublime state. You can, it, there's an opening. And therefore, um, it's a time that's easy to connect because Hashem is opening and waiting for us to connect. He's very ready to receive us. So it's, a, it's an opportune time. Like there's a there's a ace ratzon. Ace ratzon means it's a time when like Hashem is smiling. Hashem is waiting, waiting to greet us. If Hashem is not ready to greet us, if it's not the opportune time, of course prayer always helps. Any time, any day. But especially when you pray at the time when it's set aside for prayer, that means that in heaven this time is set aside for prayer. This is a time when God is intimate with us and God is expecting us and, and it's a time it's accessible. God is accessible. Continue likewise below. Likewise below in this physical world, the time of prayer is propitious for every man to ascend to a higher spiritual level. Then during the recital of the Shema or during prayer, Benoni binds his Chabad, his intellectual faculties consisting of Chok, Mabina, and Dat, to God, meditating deeply on greatness of the Bodhidha and King Sof. Meditation is always good, but when you meditate, when you meditate at a time of prayer, during the time of prayer, then your soul is open to it, heaven is open to it. It's a time that you can really connect. Everything is conducive for it. It's the mood, it's the atmosphere, it's the environment. In other words, when the Torah says, like a holiday, when the Torah says today is a holiday, that means something special happens during this time. It's not just a time like any other time. This time is holy. This time is special. When the Torah says, the code of Jewish law says that this time is a time to pray. It's a time when legally allowed to pray. That means it, that something real is happening during this time. This time is auspicious. This time is conducive. And time is connected to soul. Is connected. It means this time your soul is conducive. And heaven is conducive. And it's a time when it's easy to meditate. Everything... everything Everything will conspire to help you to meditate. It's, it's, this is the right time. There are people who always do things at the wrong time. <laughs> There's a time for everything. This is the time when everything is, everything is ready for it. This is the time when you take advantage of this time, of this opportunity. This is the opportunity that you have. Everything is open. Everything is ready. Your soul is ready. Heaven is ready. It's easy to connect with the ladders in place. This is the time when it's easy to connect heaven and earth. So you have, this is the time to meditate deeply, and the focus is on meditation deeply. He says first, he says chachma, bina, wisdom, understanding. But the key, the key is das, deep meditation, deep focus, deep concentration. We all know we have that ability. It comes with puberty. It comes with maturity. We all know that we have that ability to focus, and to meditate, and to focus deeply, and concentrate totally and absolutely. 100%, every, uh, that comes with maturity. So just like we have that ability physically, that's just a symptom that we all have that ability spiritually. We have that ability to totally focus, totally concentrate, very deeply focus and very deeply concentrate. And if you use that ability, that soul ability, 
to focus on godliness and to meditate deeply on godliness, then that will lead you to continue. And arousing through this meditation, burning love of God in the right part of his heart. But as explained in the previous chapters, meditation on God's greatness rouses the love of him within oneself. This love in turn leads the Benoni to desire to cleave to him by means of fulfilling the Torah and its commandments out of love. The realization that only the fulfillment of Torah and the Mitzvot will fulfill his desire to become one with God channels the Benoni's love into a desire to observe Torah and his so the meditation leads to a love. And once you love God, you know the only way to really connect with God. And the only way to really truly touch God is through God's Torah and mitzvot. Torah touches all the right buttons. Mitzvah touches all the right buttons. Because the mitzvah itself is God. Torah itself is divine. So when you study Torah, it activates the divine inside of you. The divine spark inside of you. And connects you with the divine essence. When you do a mitzvah, it's not just a ritual, a custom. You're doing something godly. Something very real is happening. Your soul experiences it. So when you do a mitzvah, you're actually doing something divine. And it touches, it activates some, some, something divine inside of you. So when you realize that the mitzvah is divine, and Torah is divine, and you love God, and the only way to truly connect and touch the essence of God is only through Torah and mitzvah, then you have this fierce desire, and this powerful, passionate Love of a Torah and mitzvot. You can't wait to open up a piece of Talmud and start studying a little Torah, to open up a Chumash and start studying a little Chumash and Rashi, or to open up whatever you're learning, anything in the Torah. Or you can't wait to do the next mitzvah and you do it with passion and with love and you do it beautifully. And so this is what animates, this is what motivates you and this is what animates you, this is what fires you up and gets you all excited about being Jewish, about leading a Jewish life, about behaving Jewish, speaking like a Jew, thinking like a Jew, about living the life of the Benini. This is what motivates you to do. You, you want to be 100%. You only want to think Jewish, and you only want to speak Jewish, and you only want to act Jewish, you only want to do, um, lead a life that's consistent with the code of Jewish law, lead a Torah life, because this is what connects you to God. This is, what we're gonna, this is, what, this is going to activate the divine spark inside of you and connect you with the essence of God. Can I your question with the previous paragraph about the chiming? I get home pretty late from work usually, and uh, at that time it's, it's more than I can do to even just get out the Shema. I, I feel that if there's any point in time where I'm not able to connect with anything, it's, it's late at night or late in the evening. And uh, I mean, I've heard that you should say the Shema anytime. I've heard various things like before midnight or before 3 a.m. I'm just wondering about the timing for saying Mari, if there are limits on it or if there's some guide you should use for how tired you're going to get. One of the reasons the rabbi said that you should read Shema the first opportunity you have at night exactly for that reason. Because if you're going to push it off, you're just going to be so exhausted that you're just going to lie down for a minute and before you know it, it's time to come here at 7 o'clock for the minion. <laughs> so the rabbi said that before you do anything else you shouldn't eat not allowed to eat sit down to a meal before you do the mariv because, because if you're going to sit down to a meal and it's just going to grow heavy and tired it's just mariv you're just going to forget you can do mariv before sunset or no no only in the minyan there are minyan if you do if you're down with a minyan there are those who shuls who do mincha mariv together so they do it before I mean, yeah, they have what to rely on. That's a possibility, but you have to read the Shema again. 
But Meirev um, should be the first thing, and ideally you shouldn't read the Shema after midnight. Ideally you should read it before midnight. If you had didn't, of course you can read it all night. You can daven all night. But ideally you should... You yes. But ideally... Yes, yeah, yes. Till dawn. Till dawn. But ideally, which is before sunrise, an hour before sunrise, if you look in your calendar, but um, um, ideally you should uh, read the Shema before... Uh, before uh, midnight and you know you have different people don't forget people you have some people minds their minds work best in the morning they're morning people I don't know if anyone here is a morning person people their minds work best in the morning fresh some people don't wake up till, till at night the best work is done when they get home from the office because <laughs> in the office their head is asleep they only wake up at night it's, it's, it's just a uh, metabolism, just a different type of... Every person is different. So some people, you know, the morning is their big thing. Some people, the night is the big thing. That's when they can sit and th- think deeply, and that's when they're energized. And, okay. This arousal... This arousal of love for God, and its accompanying resolve to adhere to Torah and Mitzvot, and thereby to cleave to Him, is the essential subject of the Shema, which biblical... There are commandments and joins us to recite. Well, it's not just reciting the Shema. The Shema states, We have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your being. So the, the mitzvah of reading the Shema is the mitzvah to fulfill this commandment, to actually love God, to reach a level where you actually fulfill this commandment. Fulfilling the Shema means fulfilling the commandment of loving God, experiencing that love. Not just mouthing the words. It's Shema Yisrael. Cover your eyes. Think deeply. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Which will lead you to actually, when you say the words, you have to actually feel that love in your heart. When you're saying the words, you actually should experience that love in your heart. That's the mitzvah of reading the Shema. It's not just reading the Shema. It's fulfilling the Shema. It's experiencing the Shema. You experience the Shema by actually feeling a love for God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your being. How do you do that? In order to be able to do that, continue. Likewise, the rabbinically ordained blessings preceding and following the Shema are a preparation enabling us to fulfill that which we recited in the Shema as explained elsewhere. The Talmud refers to the blessings preceding the Shema as the blessings of the Shema. The two blessings that we precede the Shema, both in the morning and at night, as the blessings of the Shema. It's very strange, very puzzling, because when you say a blessing for a mitzvah, we think of the blessing before you light the Shabbat candles, before you light the Hanukkah candles, before you put on the tefillin, before you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing, before you eat the matzah, you make a blessing. You sanctified us and you commanded us to do the following mitzvah. The exception is the blessings of the Shema. You don't make a blessing and say, Baruch Atah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech Olam. Thank you, Hashem, Hashem, you sanctified us and you commanded us to read the Shema. And you go ahead and read the Shema. No, these are not the blessings. The blessings, the introductory blessings, talk about the angels, how the, talks about the sun, talks about how the angels, the angels worship God. Uh, the next blessing talks about God's love for the Jewish people. What's the connection to the Shema? They're independent themes. They have no connection to the Shema. So why are they called the blessings of the mitzvah Shema? 
So the Alter Rebbe explains elsewhere later on in Tanya, because the mitzvah of Shema is not just reading the Shema. We don't make a blessing just for reading. We don't make a blessing before you do Birchat HaMazon. Birchat HaMazon, saying grace after the meal, is the only blessing that's biblical, according to Maimonides. According to Nachmanides, there's one other blessing that's biblical. The blessing you make before studying Torah. But we don't sit down before you say grace after the meal. You don't make a blessing. Baruch atah, shevel, akedun, melech, olam, asher, kedushanam, and sotav, etzivanu, levarech etamazon, to make, say grace after the meal, and then you go ahead and you say grace after the meal. Because you don't say a blessing on something verbal. You're not going to make a blessing on a blessing. The whole mitzvah is to bless. So the blessing is not on the mitzvah. We don't make a blessing on the mitzvah of reading the Shema. For that, you don't need a blessing. The, you need a blessing... Not for reading the Shema, but for, for, for fulfilling the Shema. For experiencing the Shema. For actually fulfilling the mitzvah of the Shema, which is to love God with all your heart. How do I suddenly love God with all my heart and all my soul and my being? I'm a, I'm a human being. I'm a materialistic being. I don't love godly things. I don't love spiritual things. I'm, I love materialism. That's something I can relate to. I can connect to. How do I relate and connect with godliness? Why is I, how is my heart... Filled with a love for God. Genuinely filled. And I'm, I'm excited about God. And about godly things. And I'm excited about, as the Shema continues, once you have a love for God, then you do the mitzvot and you study Torah, because once you have a love for God, you want godly things. Torah is godly. A mitzvah is godly. That will activate the godly spark inside of you, and that will connect you to the divine. How do I suddenly achieve that? That's why the rabbis instituted the Birchot Shema. The blessings before the Shema. The blessings before the Shema are preparation. Help me achieve an actual love of God. The first blessing talks about the angels. The angels are constantly praising God. The angels recognize Kadosh, 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 Hashem's transcendence. They recognize how they have no understanding of Hashem. How God totally transcends our awareness, higher levels of consciousness. They realize the remoteness of God, how God is so transcendent, so infinite, so beyond them, how insignificant they are in comparison to God, that this, this evokes a tremendous, powerful response within the angels. So when we think and along the same lines that the angels are thinking, how insignificant all of being and existence and creation is to God, how infinite God is, and then the second blessing, we talk about despite all of that, God loves us and He chose us over the angels and He married us over the angels and He gave us the Torah over the angels and He took us out of Egypt and He's intimate with us and He loves us and cares about us. This evokes a powerful response, a love, a reciprocal love for God. So the blessings of the Shema help us to achieve the Shema. That's why they're referred to as Birchot Kriyat Shema. They are the blessings of the mitzvah of Shema which is the mitzvah to love God with all your heart. Okay, let's just finish one, one more, one more paragraph. At such time, during the Shema or prayer, when the love of God burns in the heart of the Ben Oni, the evil in the left part of his heart, the animal soul's principal air of manifestation, is subjected to and is nullified before the goodness, i.e. the love of God, that spreads into the right part of the heart, where the divine soul is manifest from the Chabad faculties in the brain which are bound in, the, in meditation to the greatness of the blessed Ein Self. Contemplating God's greatness with the three intellectual faculties, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, Chabad, arouses and diffuses the love of God in the right part of the heart, 
This arousal of love causes the evil of the animal soul to be nullified and the good of the divine soul now pervading the heart. During the time of prayer, therefore, when the Bainani arouses his love of God through meditation, his animal soul is inactive, and he feels no inclination for physical pleasure. Thus, during prayer, the Bainani's divine soul is his undisputed sovereign, as the altar Rebbe stated above. We all have a wish. We all wish that we would be pure and holy, and that we wouldn't even be tempted to do things that are negative, things that cause us grief, things that we're sorry the moment we do it, things that we do only because we're weak, moments of weakness. We just fail and we, we do it and we, feel, we regret it, but we're not strong enough to overcome our temptation. But we don't feel good about it or addictions or things that, that, don't, that give us grief, don't make us happy. But we're weak and we, we wish, we wouldn't even be tempted to do it. But of course, that's not in our control. You can't tempt the things that are things that are totally out of our control. God didn't create us to be that way. A person who feels sorry for himself, that he has lustful desires or desires that are unhealthy, unwholesome, is a fool. Because you're human. Why shouldn't you have these desires? You're materialistic. You're down to earth. You're a real person. You respond to the stimulation around you, the energy around you. It's only a delusional person who doesn't appreciate who you are and that you're human, feels bad about things that, that are totally beyond your control. But nevertheless, we do have a, a wish. We wish that we wouldn't have these temptations. We'd like to be pure and holy, that we shouldn't even... We should only want to do the right thing. We are able to do that, at least occasionally, at least for a few moments, during prayer, during the time of prayer, when the time itself is conducive, and heaven is open, the gates of heaven are open, and our soul is open. And if you take that advantage of that opportunity and you pray, you, you, you meditate and meditate very deeply and concentrate and focus, bring your life, bring, you become focused and centered, then you can experience godliness. You can fill your consciousness, fill your mind, fill your heart with an awareness of God, which evokes a love of God. And then when your conscious self is filled with the light of Hashem, for that moment there's no room for darkness. At that moment, when your life is filled with light, there's no room for darkness. The darkness goes to sleep. It doesn't, you're not even tempted for materialism. At least for that brief moment, you're free of the conflict. You get a break. Every morning we get a break. We have the opportunity to get a break. We get a recess. Shem is kind enough. He says you have a recess from your struggles and your conflicts. and your, your, you know, It's very difficult. Shem says, I'm giving you an opportunity to take a recess. Once a day, you can get a, a recess, a break, a break from the struggle. You can, you can get out of their ring, out of their arena. You don't have to fight and wrestle and, and no, no opposition. You can totally prevail. And, and that's a tremendous relief. That's very important to have that, at least for a few moments, at least to start your day. Because then that gives you the strength, that gives you the ability when you stop praying and the animal soul comes roaring back to life. Your ego and your instincts come roaring back to life. But at least you have that taste. That memory is fresh in your head. You have that impression that stays with you. And at least that gives you the strength to be able to overcome negativity and to be able to withstand all the tests and to negotiate your way through the day and do the right thing consistently throughout the day. So it is important to, to be like the tzaddik, at least for a few moments, at least for a few brief moments. 
So it's an opportunity that God gives us, but it's up to us. Like everything else that comes from heaven, God gives us opportunities. He doesn't do it for us. We have to do it for ourselves. But He gives us opportunities. We have to grab the opportunity. Prayer is a time to grab the opportunity. Realize the preciousness of prayer. The preciousness of this opportunity that Hashem is providing for us. The time is auspicious. The soul is auspicious. It's ready. And if you take, take the advantage of this opportunity, you can fill your life with the light, the divine light, and put to bed the opposition. Take a recess. Take a break from, from the struggle, from the conflict. Because the conflict is very tiring. It's very exhausting. A person who's constantly in conflict never has a break, never has a day off, never has a time, a moment where he can go away from the conflict. It's almost impossible. It's humanly impossible. We're not, we're not machines. We're not, you can't constantly struggle and always do the right thing and never fail. There has to be moments where you could take a break. That moment is prayer. That's the opportunity that prayer, that's why prayer is so powerful. That's why the Talmud says in the early days, the Hasidim Rishonim, the early Hasidim would pray nine hours every day. Because you have three prayers. So they would spend an hour before the prayer meditating. Then they would spend an hour praying. And then they would spend an hour internalizing that experience, like integrating that experience. And then they went, out, went about their business. This was morning, afternoon, and evening. Nine hours a day they spent prayer. Because prayer is a very, it's a very powerful thing. Hasidism put prayer back in its proper place as mentioned in this Mishnah. Because prayer is not just praying for your needs. People pray so quickly, and then they go back. Prayer is essential for a Jew's life. You cannot be a complete Jew without prayer. And that's why I will just conclude with this. Prayer, this is that 248 limbs in the person's body. There's an argument whether prayer is, because the 248 mitzvot, whether prayer is one of those mitzvot. According to Maimonides, prayer is one of the 248 mitzvot. There's a mitzvot to pray each and every day. Nachmanides disagrees. Nachmanides says there's no mitzvah to pray every day. There's a mitzvah. When a person is in need, is in dire need or in danger, of course you have to pray to Hashem. Who else are you going to pray to? But there's no mitzvah to pray each and every day. So Hasidus explains, it doesn't mean that Nachmanides is denigrating prayer, that prayer is not important, it's not essential. On the contrary, according to Nachmanides, prayer is much more essential than according to Maimonides. Because yes, while it's true, it's not one of the 248 limbs. But what does prayer correspond to? The backbone, the spine. That's why you have 18 blessings. You have 18 parts of what? Vertebrae. Vertebrae in the, in the spine. The spine is not one of the limbs. But without a spine, you have nothing. The whole body collapses into a heap of, of meaningless nothingness. The spine is what keeps the whole body going. It keeps up the whole body. So prayer is not a detail. Nachmanides is saying that prayer is not a detail, an aspect of a Jew's life. It's another mitzvah. Prayer is essential. Prayer is the backbone that, that holds up the whole body. How do you get a Jew to do Torah and to do mitzvot and to be excited about doing Torah and to be into it and to be committed and to, do, and to try to be the benini, to be perfect about it and to always think like a Jew and speak like a Jew, act like a Jew, because you have prayer. Not just praying for what you need. As Maimonides discusses. Nachmanides was a Kabbalist. Nachmanides is speaking on a deeper level. Prayer is a time to connect. Prayer is a time to climb that ladder, Jacob's ladder, to touch heaven, encounter heaven. Focus, center, to experience godliness. The divine spark inside of you. Once you touch it, you experience it. And your mind and heart are on fire. 
and you're touched by the light, you fill your life with the light, the divine light, and for at least for a few brief moments, put your animal soul to sleep. At least for a few brief moments, you don't even have a craving for anything materialistic. You're not even attracted. During prayer, you're not even attracted to anything materialistic. The only thing you're attracted to, the only reality that, you, that you're attracted to is godliness. And you're free from the struggle, free from the... You have a break, a recess. You're free from that conflict, at least for those brief moments of prayer. And you can breathe easily. And then when you go back into the, into the ring, and you go back into the boxing match, you have the strength, you have that experience, you have that energy that energizes you for the rest of the day. That's why prayer is essential. Prayer, we do pray every day, but not as a detail, as, a, as an aspect, as a mitzvah. It's, it, it's, it's the underlying energy behind all the mitzvahs. Without prayer, without the backbone, without the spine, the whole structure collapses. A Jew who doesn't pray, who prayer is not an essential part of the Jewish life, prayer becomes a, um, prayer becomes a, um, a burden. The whole, the whole Torah mitzvot just becomes a burden. A burden on a person's life. You just go through the motions and it's just, you just do it technically and mechanically. So prayer is an essential, essential part of a Jew's life. 